Are we, are we what, delighted to have you here, Mark? Thank you. Um, did you enjoy your bits and bit, bits of Dublin, the, the bits of the film you shot in Dublin and yeah. west of Ireland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you go anywhere, you try to sh show a picture that hasn't quite been seen before. Yeah. You know, the hardest place that I've ever been to film is New York because oh, every right. single every single place has been filmed. Yeah, yeah. And I and I came to Dublin since childhood, and so I walked a lot and tried to look at kind of another picture of this place. Well, yes, of course, you're you're um, you're uh, from all over all over the place, but you're raised in Northern Ireland, Ballymena and Belfast and places like that. I mean, do you, is a big part of you Scottish now or are you still yeah, all yeah. Irish? Yeah, I mean, we're all hyphenates, we're all multiple identities yeah. and you, it's good to assert that, isn't it, in, the, in, in complex times. But yeah, I mean, the kind of, uh, there's something very Irish in me, mm -hmm. you know, which is the, the kind of that passion, that kind of, like, unstoppability, you know, mm -hmm. which is too much. One is too many and two is not enough kind of <laughs> yeah. thing, you know, but, uh, but then the, the Scottish thing, uh, yeah, I've been really influenced by having my adult life in Scotland. It's a place of the enlightenment. Mm -hmm. It's a place where ideas are debated and so the combination of the two work has been good for me. I think they could they go well <laughs> together, I'm sure. Um, talk a bit about um, uh, uh, we should touch on the Irish, but uh, as we are here, of the film. Um, what do you think Wells got out of the West of Ireland? Because I think we've all read a lot about the legend of the Gate Theatre and his time here, and we've read less about, it's what you say about finding things people don't know, we've read less about his experiences in the West of Ireland. What do you think he got out of that, that personally and ultimately professionally? Um, sex. <laughs> I think, you know, he lost his virginity in the West of Ireland, probably, maybe. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but also, you know, the unconscious world, the passionate world. You know, Wells came from a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant background, mm -hmm. you know, which was a which is a brilliant civilization, but it's a civilization of the mind. Yeah. It's a thought-thinking world, you know. And mm -hmm. then he came to the West of Ireland and he saw people living in a different way and being literate in a different way mm -hmm. and com combining literacy with... Uh, kind of Dionysian quality in a different way. Yeah. And I don't think he had seen that before, right. realistically. You know, and I think that that's what excited him. He, in the film, I mentioned briefly that he talks about, you know, this, this ancient culture that's almost Egyptian. And, you know, he was shocked. And when you think of, about Orson Welles' love life, you know, he did, did he ever fall in love with a kind of white Anglo-Saxon, you know, cheerleading mm. uh, blonde Woman, no, in a way, you know, it was Rita Hayworth, Latin America. It was uh, Eartha Kitt, African American, you know, mm -hmm. he, 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 uh, on and on. Marlena Dietrich, the, the great love of his life, Dolores Del Rio. You, make, you know, again and again, he was interested in the, as I say in here, the Latin world, the Celtic world, etc., the Arabic world. And, and so I think Ireland meant an awful lot yeah. to Orson Welles. It's interesting you talk there about his relationship with women, and I was interested, I wondered if you talking about this, that you went into this at a time when people were are talking a lot about the, the treatment of women in Hollywood. Um, and you were saying that you were slightly trepidatious that you might discover things about Wells and his treatment of women that would be would bring him down in our estimation a little, but you didn't. Is that right? Talking about yeah, I mean, there's never. I've never heard any allegation from anyone that Wells was sexually inappropriate with any of the women in his life. Mm -hmm. He, of course, he he hurt people emotionally, you know, men and women and the people that he loved because so many people loved him. But yeah, I, th I was slightly worried because I've, you know, in the past I've, I've known Polanski and Woody Allen and various people, you know, and they, when they, when they do these things, uh, you think, uh, 
you sort of sever your your excitement, your, your relationship with them, you know, because it's it's th these are crimes. These people are committing crimes. Orson Welles didn't commit one, any of these crimes, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, thank fuck, you know, it's <laughs> you know, it's not enough just to say he didn't, but thank fuck at least, you know. And I think that he was he was um, beloved. Mm -hmm. He was he, he was really loved. Is that reputation holding up? Do you think it's interesting that um, this is more about the work than the man himself? That a few years back. Um, in the Sight and Sound poll that Susan Kane was finally knocked off the top for the first time in <laughs> what it was 30 or 40 years or something by vertigo. Uh, does that indicate anything? Are people, are people revising their opinions of him a little bit of the work? Is it not quite as exalted as it once was? You know, uh, vertigo is um, a, m a much more like dreamlike experience than a lot of Orson Welles' work. Mm -hmm. You know, or Orson Welles is much more political filmmaker than Alfred Hitchcock, and so and there, there's a kind of reality hit. There's a kind of hardness about Citizen Kane, yeah. which is you know, Citizen Kane is totally hard. Vertigo is totally soft. Mm. You know? So it took a while for, for for Vertigo to be admired as much as it has. You know, yeah. but we know most of most of you who know Orson Welles's work probably would would consider the fact that Citizen Kane is not even his best film. So <laughs> sure. so it's no surprise that people that, that it's no longer at the top of that particular pool that you question. And I think you know times change, and now you know the film the the films of Orson Welles that are looking really really transcendent now are Chimes of Midnight and, mm -hmm. and Ambersons and in the case of my experience which is slightly weird Macbeth. Sure. Macbeth was not a film that I adored mm -hmm. uh, but I now do. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Talk a bit about the creation of this film. Um, uh, obviously it's I mean you have to find an angle to come at Wells because he's been come up in so many angles um, and you did that by the, by the artwork. Uh, tell us a bit about how you and Beatrice Wells came to this project, how you convinced her to do it or she convinced you to do it. You should mention actually, there's a, I read somewhere that you hid, you hid your Orson Wells to two yes, when you first met her. You yes, can show us where it is and show us how you managed that. Yeah, I mentioned that in the introduction. Uh, so, oh, did you? Yes. Uh, so um, I went to Michael Moore's film festival and he, Michael Moore was showing some Orson Welles films and I saw Citizen Kane for the first time on the big screen in a long time and I find myself moved, Donald, and mm -hmm. I thought, why am I moved? I've never been moved by this film and, mm -hmm. and that day, that afternoon, I went out and got that particular right. tattoo and then the next evening um, um, the, I met Beatrice Wells and you know, I was trepidatious, and uh, and she said, "Let's share a martini." Nobody's ever said that to I me. Mean, let's have one <laughs> martini between two. And I said, "Well, that's going to last five minutes, right?" You know, and, and so it did. You know, and then we had another one, and then it turned out that she'd seen some of my previous work, and she said, "There's all this stuff, all these drawings and paintings, and uh, would you like to make a film about them?" And that was my background in a way. Mm. You know, f you know, I didn't study film, and Orson Welles didn't study film, but I studied art, and so it sort of it felt that this could could work, mm -hmm. but I still needed to see the stuff, and then I think. You know, there was this big box that we see in the film, and because he died, and then his, you remember his wife, her mother died soon afterwards in a horrible car accident, and I think she just put all this stuff in a box, because it was really quite personal, there were mm. loads of, you know, intimate stuff in there, and she just put it in a box for decades, 
20 years, 30 years. And I think no one had looked at it. And so she, you know, I made her laugh. That was the other thing. <laughs> you know, we had a laugh. Uh, and so she said, do you want to see the box? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I went to New York and, and we took it back I booked an extra seat on the plane to bring it yes, back to, to um, Edinburgh where I live and had it in my flat for a year and that when you're making a film about a subject to have it in your own flat for a year mm. was really useful mm. so at some point I realised that you know there's a big shot that goes closer and closer into an eye and it goes spirals inward you know and once we once I realised I wanted to do that then you could take 4K shots of it and that was an animated thing mm-hmm. you know? so so it was really useful to have that and so I just it was like a couple of martinis and <laughs> we liked each other and that right. often as we know those of you who are filmmakers you know it's quite a touchy feely world you know you feel it and you go for it and then you don't you don't interrogate each yeah. other too much and I, I get the sense that, that you were just rooting through this big array yes. of things which had no dates on them or no dates. often had kind of no information to explain where or what it was. How yeah. did you how did you structure that's your a, researches? I mean That's exciting. You know you're Humphrey Bogart, you're detective, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and the, it, it felt like virgin territory to me, virgin snow, because I think no one had looked at this material mm-hmm. before. And so you just have to open your eyes and be alert and think what is what is this image I'm seeing and yeah. how could it relate to Orson Welles' life mm-hmm. on one hand? Or if we if I can't tag it to his life or a particular project, then how does it r- relate to a different story, which is the iconographic story, the image system of his life, you mm-hmm. know? So he had he, he did all these things, he had all these productions, but uh, also, he was just making imagery outside that, and sure. like the Christmas cards, for example. You know, they're not tied to any film. Mm-hmm. You know, but as I tried to say here, there is a development, there is an evolution here, and that was really exciting to try and see that, to put it in a timeline. As yeah, it were. and all that helped, as you say, put it in the timeline, helped you tell a story. The story that you tell is, in some ways, not the story that's been told often and too often, which is, I mean, I remember, um, probably it was when. When he died, that spitting image to this rather scurrilous thing where a, a life lived backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It is that notion that somebody who started at the, at the top and lived his life in a permanent state of decline. Now, you don't tell that story. Tell me a bit about yeah. your feelings about that negative myth and yeah. How, yeah. how it emerged and why you disagree with it. No, you're exactly right. You know, when you make anything, I always think it's useful to, to make a list of the received opinions yeah. and then strike them all out. So, he started the top and worked his way down. I definitely wasn't doing that. You strike that out. You know, also, the, the, another myth about Orson Welles, our received opinion about Orson Welles, is that he was a self-saboteur. Yeah. You know, in some Freudian sense, he couldn't complete. He was fear of completing films. First of all, I don't think the evidence supports that. But secondly, I, wouldn't, I didn't want to tell that story because it's been told a lot. So, so you push that off. And then you think, what's left? Mm-hmm. What is left? And that's where the excitement happens. You you want to avoid banality mm-hmm. as a filmmaker. You want to avoid. I don't want you to be sitting in the audience thinking, I've heard this before. You, know, you, you really that's you know, and so that's where then you need to get on to something else. And the something else for me was this structure upon Night King, etc. Whatever whatever it was, that's what worked for me. You you, you in many of your films you like the idea of addressing the subject as if the subject is there before you. Yeah. I mean, there's not your yeah. voice, actually, but you have that nine Belfast, though, actually, yeah. not you speaking in that film for most of it, but uh, another films. Tell me why that appeals to you so much, that notion yeah. of putting yourself in the film and having 
the film be a conversation between you and the subject? It feels intimate when you sit in a cinema. You know, it feels as if it's you and the, f the screen. You know, mm. I think that cinema to me feels like vocative. As I say, it's like you're addressing. They're talking. It's talking to you. Mm. So that kind of intimacy. When I record voiceovers for anything, it's always extremely close and really small. I've just my new film, you know, the people who are doing the voiceover are extremely close. Right. You know, so that works anyway. I think mm -hmm. that intimacy of cinema. It's not an objective. It's not a. It's not as I say in here. It's not like history painting. It's not mm -hmm. like fresco. It's. It's not uh, uh, kind of Michelangelo. Uh, but beyond that, in in this case, um, I definitely wanted to avoid saying he did this, he did that. Sure. I thought if you say you did this, you did that, you're immediately into a different terrain, a different landscape, a different bailiwick, mm -hmm. um, where it's more intimate, certainly, maybe more poetic, certainly. When you're, when you're, when you're sitting alone at night writing, Dear Orson Welles, you did this, you feel it's just you and him. Yeah. So it feels like a love letter, you know, and I'm, I, I think that I'm, I'm happy with that, you know, and uh, also... Uh, my own my own dad uh, dropped dead at the age of fifty six, and uh, I did a funerary. I, I I went to the church and had to talk about him, and I stood up in front of his his friends and family, and said, "Dear Dad," I spoke to him directly, mm -hmm. uh, and it felt like like the right thing to do. So uh, at the beginning of this film, I briefly mentioned that it f I felt that this film is a sort of letter to a dead dad, and so it felt like that to me. Now, obviously. He wasn't my dad. He, he was Beatrice Wells. <laughs> Only spiritually. Dad. Yeah, yeah. He's in the film, so I really hesitated before you know, when she watched the film. After when she watched the film and gave me her reactions, the, uh, then I said, "You know, I I'll tell you now. I didn't tell you before, but it f this felt like a de a letter to a dead dad." Oh, really? That's that must be the greatest compliment of all. I'm sure. Well, I said that to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and, <laughs> and, and yeah, it, you know, you want when you're a filmmaker, you want to kind of secret story as well as your your story you want a sort of secret story which is more intimate you know Scorsese talks about um, you know Raging Bull there's a tiny little thing about Raging Bull that Jake Lamotta has small hands and Martin Scorsese has small hands you know right. and it's his way of sort of latching onto the character you know throwing a rope to the character and when you want to create you want to feel a connection to your subject and so for me I thought if I imagine that it was sort of like a kind of movie dad yeah. to me it helped me get into the sort of the something to hook motion, on to motion, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and you don't you don't say that in film because yeah. you don't need to yeah. but it, it late at night or early in the morning when you're writing it really fuels your writing I wonder are you aware I mean one of the trademarks of your films, people write about talk about them, is your voice. Mm. And the voice that you use in the films is not quite your speaking voice. You've had a, it's almost an incantation quality to it. Are you aware of that, of the fact that you have a very distinctive voice, a voice that people <laughs> are prepared to imitate if, they, if given yeah. the opportunity? Yeah, people imitate my voice. People have paid... Pardon? <laughs> They're all jealous. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, you know, you know, your voice is your voice. You know, yeah. and and yeah, I, people have asked me to. I wonder, should I say this? I'll say this. Oh, do people have asked, asked me to record record things of a somewhat sexual nature? So that they, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but the, and a lot of a lot of my films were I, I brought, was brought up in a system where you don't do a commentary. Sure. You know? So I made observational films. I made my film about Holocaust denial, for example, has not my, not my voice in it. And quite a few of my early films don't have my voice in them. Mm -hmm. I just thought, fuck that. You know, I, 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 I'm going to use the voice. Yeah. You know, and, and and I've been working with. People like one film that I made started with a brilliant female voice, and then it turned into my voice, and then the third voice was a voice of a deer in the zoo. You know, so uh, the, the voice is a playful thing, yeah, yeah. you know, and you can you can mess around with it. But in this one, you know, there's a bit of messing around here, as sure. you can see, that Orson writes back. But you know, I'm not. I, it's what you've got, and, and and the other thing that I should say about this is that you know, if you work in extremely low budgets, mm. you know, then you have to sort of turn the low budget into an advantage. And so this film, like most of my films, is shot entirely silent. And I was so inspired by Federico Fellini when he said, shoot a silent film and then put a radio play on top of it. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> I, I think that's great. And, and, and it really helps. It means that you can make really low budget cinema like this one, which goes around the world. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come to the audience in just a minute. So if you, do we have microphones, by the way? We do, okay. I'll come to you, I'll ask one more question. You can ready yourself for, for a question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know historians in Europe, type of historian, um, kind of hate, hate contrafactual questions. It's the absolute dumbing down of this. But I'm kind of interested looking at one of the things you get from watching this film and reading any history of, of Wells is that he was onto fascism before mm -hmm. almost all oh, his, yeah, um, his compatriots got it mm -hmm. um, in those Shakespeare productions, for example. What would he have made of... America today, in particular, the politics of Trump and the politics of extremes. Yeah, Orson Welles' imagination was formed by the 1920s and 30s. It was formed by Mussolini and Hitler. You know, he would understand this period easily. You know, mm -hmm. it's a it's a spin in the hamster wheel. Mm. You know, he like those. He was fascinated by those characters in a kind of Susan Sontaggy type of way. You know, and he, you know, he he wasn't wholly repelled, you know, he, he wanted to get close to these people, he wanted to lift off the visor, as I say in this film, this, this beautiful um, radio play by Archibald McLeish, he wanted to pull back the visor and say, look, there's an emptiness here, there's mm. a deadness here, there's a, there's a vacuum mm. where there should be a humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think, therefore, that he would understand Modi, he would, in India, he would understand Erdogan, I think he would understand Putin, he would understand Hungary, he would understand... Uh, Poland and another country in, in North America. You know, I think that he would have simply easily got that. Yeah. You know, it's no stretch. Mm. Well, I mean, yes, you, I get your point. I mean, obviously, he would have understood the theatricality as well. Yes. I mean, literally. So the extravagance, the, the, the big on the outside and yeah. small on the inside. Yeah, yeah. Like extravagant on the outside and empty on the inside. Yeah. You know, I, that's what he got. All costume. Um, a question from the audience. Anyone want to? Ask something. There must be somebody, I'm sure. Uh, yes, sorry. This is a bit of a sad question, really. The, the great shot of him smiling out, but you presumably looking incredulous on the bed. Where, where does that picture come from? And how early on did you decide you were going to drop that into around? Yeah, that comes from uh, Orson Welles. Was late thirties in that picture, you know. And, and you know, when a lot of people, when they imagine Orson Welles, they think of the beardy guy and the sort of, you know, older guy. And I, I, first of all, I wanted to remind people that he was most famous when he was young. He was a household name uh, in America when he was young. So that was the first thing. 
Second, I was looking for, I wanted an image to recur throughout the film, uh, and I was looking for an image that, that, in a practical sense, he looked as if he was listening. And in that particular shot, his eyes are quite wide open, and he looks as if he's listening. Slightly startled at times, and I think that's okay, because I wanted him to be slightly startled at times. And the film's called The Eyes of Orson Welles, so I wanted his eyes to be very prominent. And I thought he looked very handsome in that picture, you know, and, and so for those, those are the reasons why I chose it. Um, next person, I'm not going to ask there must be, yes, I, my eyes aren't great, so if there's you some, just, There's somebody right at the back there. Yeah. The microphone is coming. If you wait, you wait for the mic, actually, yes, you wouldn't mind. It's, it's <laughs> approaching you. It's with you now. <laughs> Hi. Just in relation to um, Orson Welles, the actor, you mentioned that uh, one of his most famous roles uh, was that of Harry Lyon in The Third Man. Yes. Uh, one of the most remarkable things, I think, about that is that for about 80% of the film, he doesn't appear on screen. And yet, I think it's probably fair to say that he and his character actually dominate the film, which I think in, is, un, in, is unusual uh, in cinema. I a comment on that? <laughs> Not no, really a question. Nothing to say about that, that's true. Yeah. Um, anybody else with a question? <laughs> um, yes, there's a lady. Oh, it's Sinead. If you just hang on one second, there's a microphone pottering its way towards you. Thank you. Um, how did you how did you write and edit it then? What what was that experience like? I, I've worked with the same editor for a long time, a guy called Timo Langer. He's great, uh, and the writing process is the script. There's never a script uh, before for me. You know, it, you shoot. I will shoot first, and then the script comes after. Uh, and I always write to the image, so I'm sitting with my laptop looking at the image and then writing my response to the image. Uh, this came from, uh, uh, it was very influenced by the great Italian director Pier, Pier Paolo Pasolini, and he made a documentary which was basically called The Search for the Locations of one of his films, The Gospel of St. Matthew. And he filmed loads of stuff, sat in the edit suite, looked at the footage, and then spoke into the microphone and just spoke present tense about what he saw. And I loved it. I saw this 20 or more years ago, maybe more. Um, and so that's the technique that I've used. And so I am an early riser, so I usually write from 7.30 in the morning to 9.30, looking at the imagery. And then when the editor, Timo, comes in, then we use my script. I've recorded it at that point. And then we use that script to cut to the imagery. I've, I, I feel when I see films come with a commentary, you can tell sometimes when the script comes first and the filmmakers are toiling trying to find imagery to to illustrate the script and I'm not too keen on that so I try to reverse that I try to there's a lot of I use the word this a lot which means we're actually looking at the image Yes, I know what you mean. There's sort of there's a tendency these days to insert animation in documentaries, for example, where none is really that. necessary, or, that, yeah. or it, it's it's like make it lively because yeah. the audience might be bored, you know, yeah. and 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 they might be bored, you know, and you might have been bored by my film, but I think that if you you know, can I've worked a lot with musicians, and musicians often are 
they aspire to imagery. They musicians lo would love to have their music visual in mm. some way, and we in the visual world are sort of desperate. <laughs> we are desperate to be musical, mm. you know. And it's it's like we have we have this desire for each other, you know. And so you want to create that desire. I'm very interested in that. And so the writing is often about that kind of trying to the desire mm. for the image. Mm. Um, yes, 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 uh, yes, by all means. Just look at the way it evolved all the way through. Is that working? I don't think it is. Sorry, uh, I'll say it loud. Look yeah. at the way it evolved all the way through. Did you find what you were looking for, or were you surprised by what you found in the end? Uh, did you hear that at the back? Did we find? Did I find what I was looking for? Did I? Do um, was I surprised? You know, it's a good question, but I'm not. I, the, the big mistake as a filmmaker, I think, is particularly this kind of film, is to have a shot list, to have a wish list, to go to Marrakesh and think, I'm looking for a certain image, to go to Spain, I'm looking for a certain image. I've spent a lot of time in Iran, and I've seen loads of journalists, TV journalists, coming with a wish list. We want to see loads of women pumping the air together in chadors. We want to see somebody, people shouting death with America, you know, and, and you, you don't move any, you don't move anything forward if you, ha if you have that wish list. You're just finding the world that you already know, and you want to find the world that you don't know, you know. So when I go somewhere, I try to remove from my brain what I'm actually, what, I, what I'm expecting and find something else, you know. And I, I, there's a brilliant um, documentary about the silent movie, silent actress Lillian Gish, and the documentary was directed by Jeanne Marot, and she said to Gish, what's the most important thing in life? And Gish answered with a single word, and that word was curiosity. Mm. And that, as a, you know, that's what you're hoping for in this type, type of film. You have to go, you know, uh, you have to go out wanting to be troubled or surprised or go you want to go to I want to go to my hotel room and think wow fuck I didn't expect that were you ever troubled Pardon? were you ever troubled by anything you troubled uh, by anything troubled you know I mean this kind of film you know it, I've made films in you know war zones for example where you're deeply troubled all the time and scared all the time you know so it wasn't exactly troubled is maybe too strong a word you know but you go and you look at something and you're not you, you didn't quite expect you know I didn't know to, I didn't know we were going to the Segovia aqueduct and when I was there um, I thought god this is ringing a bell and then that night I looked at Mr. Arcade and I saw the Segovia aqueduct so in a very very narrow way you're finding something unexpected, which you know keeps you feeling alive. You know, tonight, today, tonight, I want to see something unexpected or have an experience. I want to lie in my bed and think, I did not know that that would happen. You know, and and so even in a small way, when I'm filming, I'm looking for that experience all the time. And the filmmakers in the audience, I suspect, would agree with some of that. Another uh, question, anybody? There seems to be one over there. Don't Your I? eyes are better than mine, Mark. I think. <laughs> yes, this is gentleman over there. Yeah, could I ask you, uh, Oya Kodar, I just checked on Wikipedia, I didn't know whether she was live or dead. Did you speak to her or communicate with her in any way before the making of this movie or during it? Thank you. Uh, the, for those of you who don't know, Oya Kodar was Orson Welles, well, it's mentioned briefly here, her long -term, his long-term companion. Um, I, you know, 
again, a lot of you will know this. There's a lot of rancor in the film world, a lot of in the, in the Orson world. There, you know, there's a lot of people who don't like each other. I wanted no part of that. You know, as Michelle Obama says, go high. And I wanted to go high, you know. So I wanted to make f something that really, really, really wasn't part of that. Uh, uh, obviously, Beatrice Wells is in this, you know, but this is not her point of view. It's not her portrait of her father at all. And so I sent the link of the film to Oyako Dar. And, and years ago, when I was director of the Edinburgh Film Festival, I talked to her a few times. And uh, at, the can, at the screening of this film in Cannes, uh, a gentleman came up to me afterwards and said, I'm going to Oya tomorrow, and I'm going to tell her how good the film is. Uh, so to answer your question really directly, I didn't expect to have you know, her affirmation. I wasn't seeking it, but I'm quietly confident that she will like this film because she's an artist, she's a sculptor, and this is about the kind of artistic side of Orson Welles. And so I haven't heard, but I would be surprised if she hated it. And it's, not, it's also not my job to please those people. You know, it's not the job I'm in. Um, Thank you for your question. The gentleman down here, and then we'll go back to you, madam, after that. Yeah. Uh, beautiful film. Thank you. Um, I just wondered, like, there were, there were a couple of moments in there where, where left me wanting to know more about uh, certain aspects, like the mention of the arms dealer that he visited and so on. Yes. But <laughs> you, know, you know where, just outside uh, the chimes at midnight where that was shot, and you see this little guy sitting outside and just kind of this throwaway kind of, this guy was in the film, you know, and I'd love to know, like, was there, were there moments when you were shooting it? where random stuff came up. Was that, did you go looking for that guy or was he just having, <laughs> so he told you he was hanging around? Uh, how much randomness came into that and how, you know, uh, unexpected kind of, uh, from, from where you shot, from the, set, the places you shot, uh, that, that influenced the, the final look at the film and content? Yeah, you're, you really, you, thank you for your question. You really want to be open to the unexpected thing. You know, the great Jean Renoir, the great filmmaker, said, you need, il faut laisser la porte ouverte. You need to leave the door open on the stage for unpredictable reality to come in. And so, yeah, you know, we, when we went to that village, we were there for 30 minutes or something like that. But somebody said, there's this guy who was in the film. So we went and I asked him about it, but he couldn't remember anything. But the, actually, that was not the issue. You know, there's this, I'm not an interview filmmaker. I don't do interviews, you know. And so what I was more interested in was the, just having the emotion of his face, that thought, looking at this man's face and thought that he, that he was in this thing, you know. And I've no, I'm nothing against a more journalistic approach to, to filmmaking. And somebody, I'm sure, could make a good film about the making of Chimes at Midnight. But it was the kind of, the visual thing that, excites me more. But you're right to talk about that openness. You need to have that openness. And the technology, you know, the means it's, the, the cameras are so small now, it means that you can have that fluidity, that freedom to run if something happens. Lily, just behind there on the aisle. Yes, the hand up there. Yes, exactly. They're just there. It was lovely. Thank you. Um, uh, really, like you said, a wonderful side door. Thank you. Um, I was just curious, uh, especially since you said in the beginning that there was this 20 minutes that you were concerned about or thought <laughs> I said at the beginning <laughs> that there was 20 minutes in the middle, it was a bit boring. <laughs> Slightly boring, I think. <laughs> Could you share how you sort of tussled with the length of the film? Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, you know what my thought was? Nobody's going to make another film about Orson Welles' drawings and paintings. 
That was my thought, you know. So, you know, I could have cut 20 minutes out of this, you know. And I thought, well, how do we watch films now? You know, you here sitting, you had to sit through the whole one hour 55, right? And hopefully on the big screen, it was, uh, there was a certain value in that. But you, know, you have to think long form. And if this is the, la the first and last film that'll be made in this subject, which I think it is, then I didn't want to leave things out that I thought were, would be valuable. Yeah, in terms of the insights that we had about Orson Welles, about his social justice stuff, that big long section at the beginning on his social justice and anti-racism, that Officer X thing, you know, and many, most of, a lot of you won't have known about that Officer X thing, and it's so, it's Orson Welles near his best. And I thought, keep that in, keep that long, you know, even if I frustrate you slightly in the first viewing, there is a kind of richness and a value to that which will outlast the first screening of it, and so that's that was my thought process. Most of my films are 80-something minutes. You know, this one's rather longer, but I just thought this is, you know, this is a man for the ages. You know, this, this is one of the great image makers of the 20th century. It's worth just pushing, you know, slightly impinging or asking you to stay a little longer than you would. They're waving one more. One, one okay. uh, we have one more question from the audience. Yes, this gentleman is right there who's caught it. We get the microphone to him once again. Um, with Hi. all the illusions that were occurring to you as you were researching this, was it difficult for you to stop and say, I have to finish the film, <laughs> I have to keep looking at these and more things would occur to me? Yeah, you know, no. <laughs> uh, you're right to ask that question, and the, you, you know, there, you'd think that the answer would be yes. But I've never had that problem. I work really, really fast, and I always have done. You know, so this film was edited in five weeks, which is extremely fast. You know, and uh, and I um, I got an ironing board and I packed the printed out, made photocopies of all the images, and sort of made them. You know, in sort of piles, like you do the ironing, and then, and then I could see the film, see the story, and there was never a sense of getting lost in it. You know, I, I, I'm not one of those people. I know people who spend two years on the edit, and and they they can they have somebody has to their producer has to pull them out of the edit and say enough already. But I had a sense of the destination here. I knew that Orson Welles should talk back. I knew that we wanted to get to his eyes. And it was just a matter it was if it's you know one hour fifty five or one hour thirty that was my, the only issue. I, I I didn't struggle with separation anxiety of any sort. Uh, I'll slip in one last question before we go. Sure. Um, you're off to Venice next week, yes, yes. where of course Orson Welles is the other side of the wind. We have its yes, world right. premiere, some uh, version of the film that was. Uh, left unfinished. Um, you are presenting woman make film, woman yes. making film. Women make film. Women make film. Women make film. Is I must call both those things. Tell us quickly about that and when we might get to see it. Yeah, it's another one of my big long films. You know, I make big long films. <laughs> on one of them, I made the story of film, which is fifteen and a half hours, and this new film was sixteen hours, and it's called Women Make Film, and it's it's basically looking at the great women filmmakers from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And we, know, we think we know who they are, Claire Denis and Jane Campion, etc., all brilliant, but there's a plenitude out there. We are standing on the shoulders of great women directors from Bulgaria and Romania and Ukraine and Korea, whose names, frankly, we don't know, and how fucking disgraceful that we don't know. So it's a, a film making lo love and anger. And yeah, so the first four hours is playing in the Venice Film Festival, <laughs> 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 and it isn't totally finished yet, which is slightly scary. Sure, it's a fabulous. A round of applause for Mark Cousins.